the musicians. <clears throat> okay, good to be sharing God's Word with you again this morning, and glad you've joined us. Okay, special welcome to our visitors. I hope you're, you've been blessed so far, and I hope you're blessed by this message. Now, I'll get you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll read through a portion of uh, that which Ryden's already read for us this morning, which is our focus today, which is Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, 25. We looked at this portion of scripture about a year ago uh, with the men in the men's leadership group, and I thought this would be a blessing to the whole church. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your precious words, which you have preserved for us that we might feed from this morning. We thank you for this uh, precious book that we hold within our hands, which are your, is your message to us. We pray that our hearts will be open to it this morning, that your spirit will be teaching us you be guiding us in your ways, and that we would know and see more of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The preaching of the gospel is a serious matter to God. Do you agree with that statement? It's an ultimately serious uh, situation, a serious matter. It's serious because the preaching of the gospel affects the eternal destiny of people. It affects where they will be for all of eternity. And if you don't understand how serious that is, then you've missed a very important point. It is the difference between genuine Christianity and a religion. It's a difference between genuine Christianity and a cult. And it's extraordinary that in a country 2,000 years after the gospel has been preached here, that we live in a country that still has a population apparently of around 50% of people who claim to be Christian, that you'd be hard pressed to find a person who understands when you go knocking on doors, um, who understands what the gospel actually is. Jesus asked his disciples once, when the Son of Man returns or comes, will he find faith? That was a rhetorical question, because he won't. Because as the day approaches, the hearts of people will grow cold and the word of God will be forsaken and the gospel will not be preached. We were chatting the other day with Bryden, Joshua and Salome about the challenge of witnessing. And so they've been door knocking around the, uh, the Faulkner area here and they've been coming across a certain type of people, generally their older population in Faulkner and some of those are Catholic, some of those are Muslim. So sometimes it's a bit of a challenge getting across the, and communicating the truth to those people. Um, there is a challenge. 
with sharing the gospel with people. Sometimes it's more challenging to share the gospel with people who know some of the gospel. I mean, coming from a Catholic background, I know that there are a number of elements that we share and agree with, and pretty important things as well. Catholics believe, for instance, in a virgin birth. Catholics also believe in the deity of Christ. They believe he is the Son of God. They believe in the Trinity, as we do. They believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. They believe he rose on the third day. They believe he was crucified on the cross. They believe he shed his blood. They even believe that that blood is meant to cleanse you from sin. But ask the average Catholic, who has been taught all of these things from childhood, why Jesus died on the cross. And you'll get a blank look almost every time. They have no idea why he died on the cross. For many of them, they think he was showing what it means to genuinely love. For others, it was some sort of martyrdom to show, to show how much God loved the world in a general sort of sense. But most of them, almost all of them, 99% will not understand, will not be able to answer why he died on the cross. They'll have a blank look. And if you ask them how they get saved, or how, how if he's, they call him saviour as well, if you ask them, well, how does he save? They won't know how to answer that question either. And if you ask them, well, how are you saved then? How do you get into heaven? Their answer will not be because of his sacrifice. Their answer will not be because his blood cleanses you from sin. Their answer will not be that salvation and eternal life is a gift that just has to be accepted. Because he won it, they'll generally answer to be a good person. Which is the same answer that every other religion gives. And so it's difficult when you were talking to people about the gospel who have been indoctrinated and had this idea of trying to be a good person to earn your way into heaven and that's the way you you are going to get there when you hear and, and share the gospel with them to get them actually to understand it <clears throat> and the sad part of it is there are many people who are faithful to their religion many millions who are faithful who do their best who are trying but ultimately all that trying will be in vain and the, the ignorance of the gospel will be the reason that many millions of Catholics, the Orthodox, and Anglicans, and many other, and even Baptists, will be in hell one day rather than heaven. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel is so crucial to mankind. It is supremely important to God because if the gospel is not preached, if the gospel is corrupted, then ultimately the love of God is, is not declared. Because the gospel declares the love of God. It shows us his amazing love for us. The gospel also, if the gospel is also not preached, then the amazing sacrifice that Christ has done for mankind is belittled. It's turned into something that it's not. Rather than being the all-sufficient, all-perfect sacrifice that cleanses a person from all of their sin and stain once and for all, for all of mankind forever, no, it becomes something else.
Either way, the love of God is diminished. His glory is robbed. And the souls of men are consigned to hell. The Apostle Paul, even in his day, because the gospel was already being corrupted in his day, was so outraged when he heard that the Galatians were starting to fall for this works-based religion. Even in their day, they were beginning to accept that you had to do certain works to get into heaven, that he wrote a message to them. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. And we'll see Paul's declaration upon those who would dare to corrupt the gospel of Christ. So Paul tells us and speaks to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 6. He's shocked here. He says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Did Paul mince his words here? He doesn't, he doesn't mince his words at all. He declares that anyone who perverts the gospel and doesn't preach the gospel, let them be cursed. That's, you wouldn't want to be at the receiving end of that curse. The passage that Bryden read for us this morning contrasts the insufficient nature of the sacrificial system that God had instituted with Israel in the Old Testament and all of its laws and ceremonies and sacrifices that had to be offered every single day for the sins of the people, when it compared and contrasted it to the perfect and sufficient nature of the once-for-all sacrifice that was made by Christ at Calvary for all of mankind. But there are some by their very nature who would take that perfect sacrifice and try to revert it back to the old system, who mix up the old laws with the new. You know the reason I don't wear a gown, or whatever those priests, the priests wear, or a collar or anything like that? I know some of you like to see me in the, the, in the dress. <laughs> Keep my head warmer at least anyway. The reason we don't have priests in Baptist churches is because it is a corruption of the gospel. Do you understand that? Because if I declare myself to be a priest, okay, I'm declaring myself to be different from you. Because a priest, by, by their nature in the Old Testament, was someone who could communicate with God on behalf of other people, who would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the common folk. So he was a link between God and, and them, okay? He was the person who could pray to God directly. They needed the priest. 
They couldn't offer sacrifices themselves, so they needed the priest to do that for them. If they're a priest today, then what sacrifice are they offering? If there was one sacrifice that was made once for all mankind. If they're a priest today, that I have a collar and stand behind a pulpit and are declaring the word of God, why are they different to everyone else? The answer is that they're not. Because the priesthood is done away with. In fact, the Bible declares every person to be a priest to God. Everyone. So if I declare myself to be a priest, I'm saying I'm some type of different priest to you. Or you're not a priest, but I am. That's why there's no priests. The Bible declares that every person who has received Christ as their Saviour, because he is the one mediator now between God and man, then you are that person that he is mediating for. And you can come directly to God. This is why we don't, you don't need your pastor to be praying for you. That you can pray just the same as me. And when you come to God, you come to the same place that I come. And he listens to you the same way he listens to me. The perversion of the gospel is, is a terrible thing. The Apostle Paul pronounces judgment and a curse upon all those who corrupt that perfect gospel of Christ and turn it into something else that it's not meant to be. But even the old, when you compare the Old Testament to the New, there is a stark difference. And we're going to learn why God made the Old Testament and then made the new one as well today. And this chapter in Hebrews discusses the perfect sacrifice that was offered by Jesus for the sins of mankind. And he compared it to, if you look at chapter 9 and chapter 10, it compares it to the annual sacrifice because they had not just priests who were offering sacrifices every day, but a high priest. And the high priest was allowed to once a year offer a sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And that would happen every year in the temple in Jesus' day. As well as all the daily sacrifices that were going on by the regular priests. The author says here, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4. He says, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. And in verse 11 it says, And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the temple is filled with priests, offering sacrifices, killing animals. Okay? They weren't brought in dead. They were brought in alive. <coughs> so it was a slaughterhouse. Okay? The temple was a slaughterhouse of animals. All different types of animals that, that were declared to be clean by God. Bulls, goats, lambs, doves, and the rest were brought in, had their throats cut, the blood drained from those animals. And he gives us three lettuces. When he speaks of lettuce, he's speaking of all those like him who have been saved by Jesus Christ. He says in verse 9, having therefore... Okay, so if you've been saved, if you're born again this morning, God bless you. If you are not born again this morning, if you are not saved, then this is not for you. Because there has to be a therefore. There's a therefore there, having received it. Okay, he says, having therefore, brethren, 
boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So according to this verse, every believer should be bold enough to come into the very presence of God. Bold. We should have boldness to enter into the holiest place you can imagine. Where's the holiest place in the whole universe? Standing before the very throne of God. That place where the angels revolve around and cry out day and night, non-stop, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. We can walk into that place. We can come into directly into his presence. That is the holiest where the throne room of heaven itself exists because of what we have been given in Christ. Because he has made a living way for us, not a dead way, a living way now. A way that is continually open for God's children and something that only God's children can understand. And what reason does a child of God have to come into the presence of God? Why? Why does he say here, brethren, have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus? Why? Well, the same reason you come to an earthly father. Why would you come in the presence of your earthly father? To ask for money? <laughs> Why else would you come in the presence of your dad? Have a think of that for a moment. Why would you want to spend time with your dad? On the earth. And it's the same reason you should want to spend time with your Heavenly Father to enjoy His presence, to be blessed by Him, to learn from Him, to speak to Him, to share your heart with Him, to know more of His heart, to be more like Him. To ask him for the things that only he can give. If you love someone, you want to be with that someone. If you have no desire to be with someone, then any notion that you have of love doesn't really make sense. And what does it mean here, though, that we pass through a veil? Look at verse 20. It says that Christ, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. What does it mean that we pass through this veil? What is, what is he picturing here? We'll turn to Mark chapter 15 with me for a moment. Mark chapter 15. Because just as the sacrifices in the Old Testament were pointing to something that was coming, which was the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Just as that was a picture of something else, an imperfect picture, mind you, then the temple itself was a picture of what was to come, was a picture of something else. Look at Mark 15, verse 37 to 39. It says, and Jesus cried, this is, he's on a cross, he's been nailed to that cross and he's about to die. It says, and Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain. That's torn in two 
from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that, that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The veil in the temple, when he cried out and he, and he, and he gave up the ghost, was torn from top to bottom. Now, where's the veil in the temple? Well, the temple was essentially split up into three parts. You had your outer court, the inner court of the holy place, then you had the holiest place. And the outer court was where they offered sacrifices and people came in and, and things were being done and prayers offered and sacrifices made. Then you had the inner court or the, the holy place where only the priests were allowed to go. And there was a few different items in there, the table of showbread and, and a few other things that only they could do. But then there was this other place right in the, right in the, the heart, let's say, which was the holiest of holies, and it was separated by a veil from everywhere else. And the only one who could go in there was this high priest once a year to offer a sacrifice for everyone. And when the Ark of the Covenant was around, and it wasn't around during Jesus' day, the Ark of the Covenant was held in that place. The Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, had some stuff inside of it, and there were two angels that watched that were looking down into that box, and it was a gold-lined box, and only the priests were allowed to carry that box when they travelled from place to place. But when, when they weren't, when they were settled down, that box went into that holiest of places, and then once a year the priest would offer a sacrifice, and he would pour the blood of that sacrifice for on behalf of all the people <coughs> over that box. And that box was called the mercy seat. The top of that box was called the mercy seat. And God would be present in that box, and when we present in that particular place, and above that place, there was a smoke that, that arose that was constantly there. Okay? That is a picture of a temple in heaven. And when that, that veil was torn, when Jesus died on that cross, it represented the fact that no longer was only the high priest allowed to come into the very presence of God. And he had to offer a sacrifice for himself first before he could even go into that place. Otherwise, he would die on the spot. But that place, that place, the presence of God was now opened to all those through Jesus Christ. That Jesus made a new way to God, into the very presence of God. So that's the privilege that you and I have because of what Jesus did for us. That veil was representative of what God had done. That's why it was torn from the top to the bottom. It wasn't a man who tore it from the bottom and ripped it all the way up. No, no, God tore that veil and he opened up that door. And so when someone comes to God through Christ, that person can walk in the very presence of God because of that. So then it tells us in verse 21, going back to Hebrews 10, and having a high priest over the house of God. You see, that's our link. Before only the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter into that place by himself, offer a sacrifice that no one could see what was going on. That blood that was over that seat covered the sins of the people. But now we have a high priest over the house of God who is continually in the presence of God, who sits at the right hand of God the Father. And he makes intercession for us every single day. 
And who needs intercession every single day? Every day. And Christ is that high priest for us. Because of him, because we are, the Bible says, in him, we've entered into that place. We are in his presence. Once again, this is a wonderful position to be in if you are born again here this morning. If you're saved, the scripture declares that you have this wonderful blessing. And so it says here, let us. Because we know this about ourselves, because we know this about God and what we have received and what we have the blessing of, look at verse 22 now. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we are exhorted. This is our first let us. We are exhorted to draw near with a true heart. So I've called you this morning when we were celebrating the Lord's table to examine our hearts, to come before Him. And if there's anything that, that separ is separating us from Him, because it's us who always walk away from God, never He who walks away from us. It's always something that we fail at. But we should come to Him with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, having full confidence about what He's done for us and never wavering about that. To draw near to God means to take time to come before his throne. Makes time, it means making time to pray. It means making time to worship him personally. Makes time, it means we make time to feed on his word and listen to what he has to say to us. It means making the time to meditate on that word. It means time to seek to be holy as he is holy, to imitate him, to keep our eyes on him. In order to do these things, in order to draw near to God, we have to make the time. You cannot draw near to God without making the time. Do not fool yourself here this morning. Don't think that coming to church on a Sunday and listening on a Wednesday night is somehow drawing near to God. God calls every one of us individually to make the time to be with him. And if you aren't making any time to be with him, the question you have to ask yourself is how much do I love him? What priority am I setting him in my life? If I've got more time to play and watch video games, if I've got more time to read and listen to news, if I've got more time to spend time with friends, if I've got more time to, to run around doing stuff with the family and doing, but I don't have time for him. You're kidding yourself here this morning. Honestly, if you're not making time, who are you kidding? You think you're kidding him? Or are you kidding us? Sure, you can fool me any time of the day. I'm easy to fool. I don't know your heart. I can't see what's going on there. But you can't fool yourself, really. And you can't fool him. We can play the game of Christianity every day of our lives. You can play it. And you can make everyone else think that you're okay. But this morning, the Bible tells us, let us draw near to him. And that takes time. 
choose to love him above all other things and make the time for him. Make a decision. If you're here this morning and you've, you've, you've said that you've received Christ as your Savior, well, then you made a decision, didn't you? You made a choice. You made a choice to put your trust in him. Now, how do I draw near to God? Make a choice. Because the devil and your flesh will, will cause you to not make a choice. He doesn't want you to make making decisions. He doesn't want you making choices and following through on those things. Your flesh will not want you to do that. But don't let your flesh overcome the spirit. We need to understand that we have a very short time on this planet. A very short time. And whatever days we have are a gift from God and we are responsible on how we use those days. If we go around chasing after all of the world's dreams and seeking to enjoy ourselves as much as the world is enjoying themselves, thinking to ourselves, oh, if I don't, if I don't have this latest thing or if I don't have that, then you know I'm gonna miss out. You know that's that's the devil's lie, don't you? The devil's lies to keep you as busy as you possibly can chasing after rainbows and unicorns in this world, thinking that you're going to be happy and you're going to be fulfilled if you just have what everyone else has. Don't be fooled. It's a lie to keep you away from the one and the only one who can give you true joy. And the only one who was worth spending your time on. Everything else should come second. Everything else should come second. Everything. Your family, your friends, your personal pleasure, your personal pastimes, whatever it is you think you're doing, God needs to come first. Otherwise, you are kidding yourself. Spend time in worship, personal worship for him. Spend time reading his word. Yes, on my job is to prepare a meal for you once a week here, okay? And I pray to God that I actually can deliver a good meal for you to digest. But you can't live on one meal a week, guys. You can't. Spend time with him. Share your heart with him. He wants to hear from you. He wants you to speak to him. He wants you to tell him all the things you're going through. Don't hold back. Don't block him out thinking that you're, you're going to live a better life with him not in it. We are not orphans. We are adopted children. So live like it. Make no mistake. The voice that you hear when you're thinking about doing something else other than for God is not coming from God. It's coming from the flesh and will only lead to death. We should make a regular habit of spending time with God. Make the decision. Make it today. Don't waste any other, any other time. Make a decision. I'm going to spend every day with you, Lord. I'm going to spend time in the morning. I'm going to spend time in the evening. I'm going to commit myself to you and I'm going to learn more from you. I want to be as much as I can like you. And I love you because of what you've done for me. So I want to spend time with you. That's worth, that's time worth spending. And you will be blessed spending that time. So let us draw near to him. Now the same verse provides us with great reasons that we can do that. 
It says, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can do that because look what you have. <laughs> we can have absolute certainty about being able to come before God like no other people on this planet. For everyone else on this planet, their gods are far away from them. You understand that, don't you? You ask the average person out there about where God is, they will not say that he's living inside them. They think he's far away in some, you know, some uh, alternate reality somewhere, very far away. But that's not true for us. Not true for us at all. We can have absolute certainty about being able to come the moment we say our Father is the moment you are already in his presence. Don't take it for granted that, you can, that he allows us to come before him so easily. But you've come before the king of the universe. So remember that. Our assurance doesn't come from our own works, from our own selves, nor our righteousness, nor our efforts. It only comes because of Christ and what he's done for us. He is the only one who is worthy to come before God. He's the only one. But because of him, because we are in him, God has allowed us to come as well. We had an evil conscience. Notice it says here, it says having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Yes, we had an evil conscience. A conscience that, was, that wasn't working. That thought that evil was good and good was evil. We know now, God has opened up our eyes to what is true, what is right. Our hearts have been sprinkled from that evil conscience. And it says even our bodies have been made fit. Notice it says we've been cleansed, washed with pure water. The reason you and I can have the Holy Ghost living inside our body is because God has made us fit. God has cleansed us. Even these bodies which are decaying, God has made suitable to house the Holy Spirit. We weren't suitable before. So examine your heart and ask yourself, do you put God first? Where in the, where in the list of things has God come? If God asks you to do something and you're busy doing something else, would you stop that one thing? If there's a party that's organised, would you still go to that party? If there's a football match on, is that football match going to be more important for you? If you're catching up with your friends, are those friends more important for you than doing something for the Lord? Think of that for a moment and ask yourself those questions and be honest. Don't lie to yourself. There's no point in that. Which brings us to the next, let us, number two, Hebrews 10.23. It says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful, that promise. And there are plenty of people that have made professions of faith. A profession of faith is simply something that someone says about them putting their faith in Jesus. Okay? I profess to you that I have put my faith in Jesus to save me from my sins. Fair enough? That's my, my profession. But there are plenty of people, it seems, that have made professions that have no possession. They don't possess Christ. They don't possess salvation. They're empty words, and words come cheap. It says he let us hold fast to the profession of our faith without wavering. Hold fast means to, 
hold tightly to. <clears throat> hold it firmly. And it means that you continue to have great faith in the gospel message that you say has saved your soul. Hold on firmly onto that truth. It means you continue to have great faith in the one who the gospel message is all about. This is not true for Christendom today. Because most people have discarded the word of God and discarded the gospel along the way. So they've got nothing to hold on to. What have they got to hold on to? If you ask the average person, how do you get into heaven? Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Or how do you get into heaven? Oh, by being a good person. What are they holding on to? They're holding on to Jesus? No. They're holding on to their good works. And they're hoping that their good works, they're going to be able to bring with them into heaven and say, look, God, look what I've got for you. And God said, that's a wonderful uh, a collection of dirty rags you've got there for me. What am I meant to do with those things? Most people have not, do not have a profession of faith at all. But their profession of faith is faith in their works, faith in their religion, faith in a system, faith in their friends, faith in whatever they're involved with, not faith in Christ. But we should never waver in our trust of who has saved us and the message that has saved us. Because the message is true and the one who, who the message is about is always faithful. And whatever promise he has made us, and he's made us huge promises by the way, huge, he always keeps because he is a man of his word and he has the power and the ability to fulfill all of his promises. If someone wavers in their their profession about the gospel message. If someone says, yeah, oh, I'm not sure, or maybe I am, maybe that, that person, I'm telling you, they're not saved. Because that person hasn't understood what salvation is, that it's not them, it's actually him that's saved. Believing in the gospel is not maybe one day yes, maybe one day no. Believing in the gospel is a decision you have made which affects you for all of eternity and God opens up your eyes and adopts you into his family and changes you from the inside out. Salvation comes from a decision to believe, not from an effort to get to. The choice is eternal and changes you forever. Our faith is then strengthened by feeding on the word of God and obeying the word of God. And if you take both, either of those two elements out, your faith will not strengthen at all. It will remain weak. You can't take away obedience to God's word and expect to be strong in the faith. Your, your life will be a roller coaster. Your life will be ups and downs and you will not be happy as a, as a, as a believer. You will not be joyful as a believer. And you can't take, take away the word of God and expect yourself to grow as well. Which brings us to this third let us, the final one. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good words. Yes, so we draw near to God first. That's your first priority. Build your relationship with him. Then hold on to that truth that has saved you and don't let go of it. Build your faith. But then there's this third element, which is the human one, which is the one that, that often is an indication of the first two, okay? Because the way we treat each other 
is actually a mirror, is actually an indication of what we actually have with him. It says that we are to consider one each other. And how, what are we meant to do by considering each other? Well, it says to provoke each other. I love provoking people all the time. Fantastic. Sometimes my bad jokes get me into trouble, but provoking, we don't, we, provoking has negative connotations in it. If I provoke you, people automatically think that you, you're provoking always means provoking you to anger, to, you know, to a hatred, to, you know, to, to violence or whatever else it may be, to, to jealousy. But the Bible in this particular case is saying that we have to provoke each other, we have to prod each other, poke each other to love and to good works. And preaching is designed to provoke people. That's the whole purpose of preaching. If I can't provoke you to do something, my preaching is in vain. Okay? I'm provoking you to do something. And sometimes that provoking is meant to make you uncomfortable. Preaching is designed to provoke people to rest, to action, to stir up the troops, to call for a commitment, to take up the fight, because there is a fight. Such a perfect, that's a perfect word when you think of it, you think of provoking. You know, if you're, in an, if you're a, a soldier and you've just had a, a beautiful rest, you know what I mean? You're, you're lying down in your bunk and you're enjoying the time just resting and then your sergeant comes in and blows a, a trumpet, a bugle right in your ear and says, get up, get up. The enemy is coming. And you have to get up and fight to get yourself ready. You know, you may as a soldier not like that. Your ear may be ringing. You now have to get up off your bed, get yourself, you know, suited up, get your gun ready, and now have to go out into that, that fray. You don't like it, but you have to be provoked to do it. Okay, does that make sense? And that's what the preaching of the gospel is about. You know, the, 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 the Greek word, I don't normally look up the Greek word, but I thought this is an interesting word because I, I wanted to see what provoke meant to the Greeks. And provoke meant to the Greeks, it meant how iron sharpens iron. How one piece of iron is used to sharpen another piece of iron, right? But that, that's the idea of provoke. And <laughs> Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. You know when iron sharpens iron, you get sparks sometimes, don't you? And that's what we're called to do to each other. It isn't the nicest thing, necessarily, but it's necessary to keep that blade sharp. It has to be rubbed. It has to be ground. And sometimes my preaching probably sounds like you're being ground down, but it's necessary. And this is, explains why the church is so important. It's so important. Because when you come to church, it's not what most people go to church for these days. It's not for what I can get out of it. I love that phrase. Oh, I'm not getting anything out of it. Oh, really? Okay. Not getting anything out of it. I wonder what they were expecting. 
maybe go out and feel good, maybe, you know, some entertain, light entertainment. The church is important not because we've been called here to enjoy, to play, you know, to, to get out of it. No, the job here is to focus ourselves once again because when we go out in that world, we're easily distracted. And we need to provoke each other. This is the place that you come, that we come, to help sharpen each other up again, to go out into that battle and to use that sword because it can get blunt very quickly. We need each other. And so when you don't come to church, when you don't spend time with other believers, you lose that and you dishonor God by not doing that. We are called to love one another, see, to provoke each other. To provoke each other to love is not an easy thing to do. I mean, who has love sorted out? Anyone here got love sorted out perfectly? They love perfectly? No one loves perfectly here? Well, you're all failures, aren't you? What am I doing up here? I'm trying to provoke you to love, right? And I'm trying to provoke myself to love as well. Because love is not an easy thing. Love is a very hard thing. When Jesus says, love your enemy, so the guy who pokes me in the eye, I'm meant to love that guy? When the one who, who, who hates me for what I preach behind this pulpit, I'm meant to love that guy? How do I love that guy? Is it a feeling that I have towards him? A mushy sort of feeling? No. I'm meant to be doing good to people. That's the purpose of love. And love is not easy. Love requires the grace of God. Love requires us to stir each other up. Love requires us to remind each other about how much God loved us so I can then go out and love other people. Because loving is a very hard job. And then on top of that, it says that God wants us to do good works, that we are to, to, to encourage each other, to provoke each other to do good works. How do I provoke you to do good works? How do I do that? Well, I have to do some good works myself, don't I? To be example, at least, for you. And if I see that you're lazy, that you're, you're lying down in your bed and you don't care about doing good works for God, my job is to rev you up a bit and to tell you how important it is to use the time here wisely because we don't and we have so little of it. Provoke each other. And it's not just me provoking you. Can you please provoke me? I need your provoking and provoke each other as much as you can because there's not much time. And so it tells us as a final verse, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. You cannot claim this morning to be walking with the Lord but desiring not to be with the ones who are seeking to walk with him as well. Yeah, I know it's hard because none of us are perfect in here. 
Each of us has problems. Each of us has weaknesses. And we're called to help each other with those weaknesses. But if I was to abandon you today, if I was to leave this pulpit because some of you are difficult, because some of you maybe have a problem that I don't like, how would you, what would you think of me? Don't abandon each other. Don't. Remember, I'm not a priest. I'm no higher than you. In fact, I'm your servant. That's all I am. And so please do not abandon the other people in this church. There is a massive problem if you have no desire to worship God together with your family. To be together with your family. The, the, the Bible calls a man who does not provide his, for his family. Do you want know to call that person? Yeah, it says a man who doesn't provide for his family in a physical sense, it calls that person worse. What do you provide for other people in this church? What is it that you're doing? Do you help draw other people to God? Do you help provoke them to love? Are you a good example for them? Are you a teacher? Are you an encourager? Do you, do you seek the lost? I, what are you doing for your family? Remember, Jesus said that one of the hallmarks of a true disciple was the love that you have one for another. That the world will actually see how much we love each other. Would the world see that? Does the world see that in you this morning? Some say there's hypocrisy in the church. Spot on. I've heard some people say, oh, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites in there. And praise God. Plenty of hypocrites in the church. But that person doesn't understand how hypocritical it is to call other people hypocritical. <laughs> because that person isn't looking at themselves. How hypocritical, how, how hypocr I can't even say it, how hypocritical they are. <laughs> And they should repent of their own hypocrisy before they point the finger at other people's hypocrisies. And love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Where do you think, where do you think that's happening? It happens in the church. And it's a day approaching. It says here, and so much the more, so much the more we are to assemble each other. We are to get together with each other. So much the more as we see the day approaching, as you see the day approaching, what day is talking about? The day that the Prince Charles was, was uh, crowned king? Nahu. That the coming of the Lord is drawing nearer. Is his coming nearer than what it was yesterday? Yes. And then we're exhorted, we're commanded to exhort one another as we look forward to that day, understanding that there is a limit, there is a time. And I've heard every, many people, I don't say every person, but many people saying out there, oh, Jesus must be returning soon, right? Jesus must be returning soon. Look at all the stuff that's going on around us. Jesus must be returning soon. But then at the same time, I see those people living the same lives I were living yesterday. I don't see an urgency about them. I don't see them loving their brethren more. No, I see they're actually loving them brethren less. And I wondered to myself, what did you think he's going to say when he, when he returns? 
commanded to exhort one another and that means that we are in contact and be together as much as we possibly can as we look forward together to that day. What good will it do when the Lord comes and you're locked up in your house? True love means to get your hands dirty. Dealing with people means you're going to find mess. Okay? And it takes effort. Not look to just yourself. True love means you focus on God first and then those others around you. It is hard work. It is. And that's what we've been called to. Jesus never said that becoming a believer, that being a follower of his, that belonging to the church was going to be an easy ride. I don't remember any, if anyone can share me one of those scriptures, I'd love to find it, okay? I never heard one place where he said it was going to be easy. In fact, he, there are plenty of verses that says you're going to find it hard. The apostles didn't have it easy. Jesus didn't have it easy. All the Old Testament saints didn't have it easy. Will you come under the attack of the devil when you choose to obey? Yes. Understand that. The devil's not going to bother with you. The devil's going to leave you alone if you're not doing anything for God. Why would he bother? You're not a threat to him. But the moment you choose to obey God is the moment he is going to take notice of you. So expect it. We're not those people that draw back, that abandon the church, that abandon the faith because we've been saved. We are the ones who draw near to God. We are the ones who hold firm and fast to the faith that God has delivered to us. And we are the ones who are called to encourage and provoke each other to love and good works. Let's remember those things today. If you're struggling in your walk, I will guarantee you that you are not doing one or more of those things. I'll guarantee you. And if there's anything that we need to repent of, it's not following the word of God. Okay? Um, let's build up one another in the faith. Let's keep our eyes firmly upon our Saviour. God bless you. Thanks. Amen.